0: For many years he was the Dumbledore of Eurovision, spearheading the contest as the executive supervisor between 2011 and 2020. But already before this he had acted as both head of delegation for Norway and as executive producer for the contest in Oslo 2010. Who is the man, the myth, the legend, Johan Olassan? What has happened during his years in the contest? Which stories has he got to tell and is he starting to recover yet? For this episode I also invited my friend and colleague, Marcus Björkander, to be my sidekick.
1: Yes, since you know I am a stickler for anything having to do with rules and organisation.
0: Yeah, you are a bit of a nerd. You are listening to Eurovision Legends with your own Harry Potter, Emil Löveström, and with me, my besta vissa, Hermione Björkander. Thanks. Take it away, Juno sand. Welcome to Eurovision Legends, jo and Ola Sand. I hope everything is kämpegöj with you. Everything is kämpegöj här. We have so much to talk about and we will love to hear everything from your long career with Eurovision, but for that we would need 10 till 15 weeks, so let's focus on some of the highlights. That's okay. But I would like to warm up with the conversation with some quick questions so we get to know you and your taste a bit more. May we take it away? We can take it away. First memory from watching the Eurovision Song Contest.
2: Ah, uh, that goes very long time back. I think. Uh, I mean, when I grew up, we were always watching the Eurovision Song Contest at home together. I have an older sister and a younger brother, and uh, my mother and father. We were always gathering to watch Eurovision Song Contest, and I was very young when ABBA winning in '74. Uh, I was sitting with the the family, watching it, and I thought it was so wild, so crazy, uh, so cool. And uh, that's actually my first strong memory of the Eurovision Song Contest.
0: Name drop three non-Norwegian songs from the contest that you really love.
2: Non-Norwegian songs? Yep. <laughs> well, uh, you cannot pass Euphoria because I think that's a great song. It's an and a stunning performance. Uh, so Lorraine and Euphoria is one of my real favorites. You heard- I think Puppet on the String is also a very strong and modern song, modern at that time, but still stands out uh, as a very good song.
0: I wonder if one day that you say that you care, if you say you love me madly, I gladly be there like a puppet on a string,
1: like a puppet on a string.
2: And then there, there are a lot of more good songs. Um, and you want me to pick one more? Yep. Mm, let me think about it. I get back to you uh, during the interview. Okay?
0: okay. According to you, who should have won Eurovision but didn't? <laughs> uh,
2: I, I have no comment to that because I think. Uh, The winner of the Eurovision Song Contest is the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest. And especially now when you both have juries and public votes in there. Uh, So, no, (laughs) I have no comments to that.
0: Funniest moment in Eurovision during your years? (sighs)
2: So many funny moments. Uh... I cannot really point out any funniest moment, or wildest moment, or most crazy moment, or scariest moment. It's uh, it's been a lot of good moments over the years, but I, I cannot really point out any anyone particular.
0: Best song in Eurovision from Norway.
2: <laughs> I think Fairy Tale is uh, is one of the. The absolute highlights from, from Norway during the period of the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, also because of the performance. I think Alexander did a great job on that stage in Moscow. But you also have a lot of swing yeah? Bobby Sox. Uh, it's also a great, colorful act. Uh, and then you have a lot of, of, of good acts that didn't make it to the top. But still... still um, you know monster like me I think that's a that's a really strong strong song and strong performance Just go. Yeah, but I think Alexander Rybak stands out, really, with fairy tale.
0: Favorite country in Eurovision nowadays, apart from Norway?
2: <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say Sweden. Uh, I think Sweden has performed so well over so many years. Uh, a lot of strong songs, a lot of strong artists, good acts. I, I've been working closely with the uh, Swedes over many years when it comes to Eurovision Song Contest, Melody Festival, Melody Grand Prix. There was a bit ahead. Uh, very well prepared. They really knew how to challenge the way of writing a three-minute pop song. And they've succeeded so well. So, yeah, well, it has to be the Swedes.
0: Which country do you think should either take a break or step up?
2: Ah. <laughs> uh... You're barking up the wrong tree, actually, because I'm 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 not in position to to say anything about this because I think the beauty of Eurovision Song Contest is that everyone can participate. Every broadcaster uh, that uh, that is a member of the EBU can participate, and they should participate. For some years, they might not you know make it as good as they should, or or the potential is 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 not you know exploited to the full. But I still think that answering a question like that would, would be wrong. And, and those who know me um, know that I'm very difficult to challenge on these kind of questions.
0: Just so you know, you get exactly the same question as Christy Björkman, and he loved them.
2: Well, Christy is a different personality.
0: <laughs> Big five, good or bad?
2: Yeah. Uh, It's both good and bad. It's good because you would not want a Eurovision Song Contest without the big five. Can you imagine the markets of UK, Germany, Italy, Spain, France not being part of the Eurovision Song Contest? It would diminish the Eurovision Song Contest tremendously when it comes to audience and awareness. In UK alone, there's there's almost 10 million v- viewers uh, every year. More, well, a little less, but it's is one of their, their their most successful shows. Uh, Germany as well, huge audience share, and you don't want to miss them out. It's bad because uh, it's it's not in line with what true competition should be. You should all you know go through the same qualification rounds and, and be able to participate on equal terms. But still, I think it's good with the big five. I think it's good that we keep them in and good that they you know, can bring a huge amount of audience uh, and also uh, interest, enthusiasm, uh, and, and everything that goes with it.
0: If you could decide on your own, what should be the next rule change in Eurovision for 2022?
2: Well, I've always been uh, uh, a huge... Uh, defender of the rule change we made in twenty sixteen. No, it was thirteen actually. Where we decided not to draw the running order, but actually make the best possible running order. I think we now have a combination that is fine. It is the most uh, significant and most important change in Eurovision Song Contest that you actually can compose the best TV program, and this is a, this is a well known recipe you compose a tv program uh, so so uh, i think that would have been a great change to have uh, to be able to compose it freely now you have a, a draw which is good because it puts focus on the event in late january but i think it would be good to have um, free hands from the producers and the ebu to actually compose the best possible show uh, so that would be um, a good change. If I would be in a position to decide that uh, now, I also think that that we have to look closely on backing vocals on on, on tape. Actually, I understand that that there are um, a lot of resistance to this because uh, some people see this, you know, moving towards a karaoke show. But both for uh, for practical reasons, for economical reasons, but also for the pure sound uh, issue, I think it would be good to put the backing vocals on tape and then focus on the visual aspect. And of course, have the lead singer singing live. So so this might be two of the changes I would go for if I were in the position to, to do so.
0: Last quick question. Worst decision in your career in Eurovision? And please elaborate. (laughs)
2: <laughs> My worst decision. I didn't make any bad decisions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> joke aside, I think looking in the mirror, uh, hindsight, I think we could, you know, have done a nothing, you know, maybe we could have done things differently or, or better. I will focus on what we managed to achieve, actually, to, to build a stronger Eurovision Song Contest, to, to focus on on sustainability, on the financial side of it. Focus on the values of the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, I won't pick any sort of bad moments, but you know, you could always do things better.
0: Great, you survived the first part.
1: Well, of course he oh, did. Thank you very much. You know, Emil, he's a tough guy. He has survived people like Philippe Kirkorov, Ralph Siegel, and Christy Gorkman <laughs> several <laughs> times. So, of course, he
0: survived this.
2: <laughs> well, this will be peanuts then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, shall we begin with, how did everything start for you in the 90s with Eurovision? Well,
2: I've I've been working with public service broadcaster NRK in Norway since early 80s, actually. Um, I've had all kinds of different positions in that field. Um, I've been a a runner, I've been a program assistant, I've been a researcher, multi-camera director, I've been editor-in-chief, project manager, I've been a commissioning editor. So I I have a very broad and solid background from TV. And uh, I took over as project manager of the Norwegian uh, pre-selection show called Melodie Grand Prix in 97. And so in 98, my first uh, trip to the Eurovision Song Contest was in Birmingham as head of the Norwegian delegation. And this was sort of the first time I encountered the beast. And uh, that was actually the last year of the orchestra yep. participating for uh, in Eurovision Song Contest. So so then I continued uh, as a head of delegation for many years. I also commissioned the program for NRK and both the national final and also the Eurovision Song Contest. And when Alexander Rybak won in Moscow in 2009, I was there. I was sitting uh, backstage actually, and I was probably the last person who saw or understood that Alexander reback actually was going to win. And when he did, I understood immediately that this was going to hit an arcade as a relatively small broadcaster in the outskirts of Europe really hard. It's a very complicated show to make. It's a very expensive show to make or shows to make. So when I was appointed uh the executive producer of the Eurovision Song Contest in Oslo 2010. I brought that, you know, that experience from being a, a head of delegation. Uh, all the things I thought didn't work uh, at that time, uh, being a head of delegation, and try to to do some changes for the Oslo edition. And I think we, we succeed, uh, you know, and, and mainly that was on the financial side, on the non-visible sides, uh, but also on on the hosting of it, trying to bring humor in, trying to bring a reason for it, uh, creating the slogan, Share the Moment, which we actually used throughout the whole show and, and all the three transmissions to give the show a reason and a sort of a, um, a higher sky, uh, if you like. Yeah. And uh, right after that... Uh, uh, my predecessor, uh, uh, Svante Doxelius, decided to leave the EBU. And then I was appointed the executive supervisor by the EBU. And I moved to Geneva in uh, January 2011. Uh, so I have a long history with Eurovision Song Contest. I have a long history with TV production. And I must say, I think it's almost impossible to imagine anyone in the position as the executive supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest, not having a very strong and broad TV background, understanding the different challenges with hosting a show like this, uh, uh, both on the creative side, but also on the logistics side. It's, a, it's an enormous challenge for every broadcaster that wins
0: it. If we go back in charm... Uh, To the years 98 to 2005, when you led the Norwegian delegation. The results for your country were quite mixed. One top five position with Jostein Hasselgård. Also, two last places with Haldor Legreid and Knut Andersörum, which led to Norway missing out in 2002, since this was before semifinals. And Georgia Norway has ended last 11 times in the debut in 1960, which is a record, of course, we congratulate you for. <laughs> but why do you think Norway has had it pretty tough in the competition throughout the years?
2: I, I think this is uh, due to a lack of pop music culture in Norway. Norway has a very strong musical culture, uh, both on the classical side, on the other side of the contemporary music Jazz music, but on the area of pop music, NRK, uh, sorry, Norway has never sort of had any big international stars, not had any big national market for for pop music that could sound like um, music that could please or entertain other than the Norwegians. Uh, we've been quite comfortable with that, but uh, it's true. Uh, all the way through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we had, and also the 90s, we have had few successes uh, in the Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, this is a mixed thing that it's not only about NRK as a broadcaster, because this is a competition between broadcasters, and, and hence the broadcaster is responsible for... For finding and signing up for, for a good artist and song. But it's, it's also been lacking within the music industry, the professional music industry. And I, I think that's, that's the reason this has changed a lot over the last, I would say 10 years, 10, 15 years, where there is now a much bigger output on, on Norwegian contemporary pop artists that, that, you know, does it really well. All over Europe and and beyond. Uh, also, when it comes to composers, uh, when it comes to producers, yeah, all of it. So, yeah, we were not trimmed on and tuned in to to be good at delivering three minute pop songs that could, you know, create enthusiasm in Europe.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, since Sweden has for long been such a pop powerhouse and Swedes and, and Norwegians are basically the same except the fact that
2: you are richer. Well, it's 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 not true that we are the same and especially not when it comes to music. I think Sweden, even when I grew up, we were, we were listening to Swedish pop music because it had a much stronger present, uh, presence and, and better songs, basically. And um, I think you saw this when ABBA, entered the Eurovision Song Contest. It was a, v- a very slick and cool act that didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a tr- pop tradition that was already rooted in Sweden. So, um, so yeah, Sweden and Norway are <laughs> very much the same, but uh, in some areas, especially when it comes to pop music, uh, very different. You
1: were the head of delegation for many years, and this the competition was held in seven different countries during that time. The United Kingdom, Israel, Sweden, Denmark, Latvia, Turkey, and the Ukraine. And these are countries that then and still differ significantly from each other in terms of economy, infrastructure, corruption, and even human rights. Did the Norwegian team experience any problems, or did you notice any problems?
2: Uh, no, I cannot recall any problems. They all have their challenges. Uh, and, uh, where some countries are really good in TV production, like the BBC, you know, they didn't stage a good event. Uh, the hotel situation, the transportation situation, uh, a lot of the logistics, in my opinion, failed. I actually wrote a report to DBU after, after being there because we, as a delegation didn't have the best of time there. Um, but when it came to TV production, I mean, they were super. And because the BBC knows how to make TV and they've always done that. So the TV show was, was great. We didn't felt that the logistics around it was great. You know, different in other countries where where well, for instance when we were in turkey in in, um, in, 19, 2004. in in 2004 thank you um it was a fantastic event transportation uh, entertainment catering uh, the way we were treated the, the the preciseness of the information was fantastic the tv production however Lacked a little of the finance or uh, finest, finest uh, sophistication that you could expect from the Eurovision Song Contest, in our opinion. So, so it's always a different experience to travel around, and you know, again, I think uh, the year in Sweden in 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 two thousand was um, a fantastic year uh, in Globen, and I think SVT at that time made a made a leap when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest, a cool logo for the event, uh, very well-organized events, cool hosts, and um, a great TV production. So it's different every year. And I, I have experienced that myself as the executive supervisor. It's different from country to country. And you have to build on the strength they have. And, and actually, you know encourage them to use that and then lift uh, on the other parts that aren't that good.
0: Why did you stop in 2005 as head of delegation? I've,
2: I had other tasks to do within the organization. I went from producer to commissioning editor, yeah. uh, which is a different role. And I worked from 2005 till 2009 as a commissioning editor, uh, commissioning drama, cultural programming, entertainment, entertainment, uh, and that's a very demanding uh, job, and and then again, it's dif- it's important to let other people also come uh, on board and to you know do things differently. And then we had uh, a different team uh, on the head of delegation side for Eurovision Song Contest.
1: I, I just must ask something I've been wondering for twenty three years. When you were first the head of delegation in nineteen ninety eight, we had the f- quite amusing situation that the Norwegian song. All I Ever Wanted Was You, it was sung in English in Norway, and then you traveled to England and sang it in Norwegian. Did you anticipate <laughs> the, the language rule change a year in advance? Are you such a visionary?
2: <laughs> uh, I wish I could say yes, uh, but that's not the reason. Uh, the reason was that in order to have, uh, at that time at least, to have a successful pop song in Norway, you had to sing it in English. Strangely enough, but that was the reason uh, that we decided to perform it in in English. uh, Or that was, you know, the discussion with the record company, with the artist, with the uh, songwriter. They could deliver that song if it was sung in English uh, in the national final uh, in Norway because that would, you know, make a bigger impact for it. And then the rule change didn't come uh, or, or wasn't in place that year, so we had to sing it in Norwegian. Uh, but uh, it's a fact that the English version of the song was a much bigger hit in Norway than the, the Norwegian version of it.
0: Cause all I ever wanted was you. you came and you saw and you my love. move forward to 2010 can you take us behind the scenes? We would love to hear what happened there, except that Sweden cried (laughs) Uh,
2: It's too too, when Eurovision Song Contest land in your backyard as it actually does when you, you win it You know that you have an enormous challenge ahead. No public service broadcaster in Europe is trimmed or tuned to make such a huge investment and such a huge logistic operation in such a short time. You have a short year to prepare and most processes in public service broadcasting is very slow. You need a lot of resources. You need a lot of people you need to hire people externally. Uh, you need, you know, not only from Norway but from other countries. You get a lot of expectations on your desk from all kind of environments all over the country: uh, cultural people, journalists, artists. Uh, it's like being in the middle of a tornado in just a split second. And I must say that the first four or five months, you really hammered by the intensity of the the challenge and uh, and so was it with us as well luckily i had as many of the 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 winning broadcasters have but i had experience as head of delegation but i also had broad tv background and also been uh, had been in different positions at the broadcaster so i quite quickly knew how to maneuver the beast inside Uh, the broadcaster, inside the environment in Norway. Most uh, broadcasters in Europe, they cannot accept any money from uh, the state to produce single programs, like the Eurovision Song Contest, for instance. You have to rely on the city and you have to rely on the funding of the broadcaster. So we had quite a tough time the first five months. Also, because Norway is not well-equipped with big venues to host the Eurovision Song Contest. And most of the cities in Norway are a bit too small to really be able to absorb the event when it comes to hotels and, and everything that goes with it. So that was tough first five months because we, we soon understood that we had to end up in Oslo. There were no other way you know, we could make that event work. And being sort of reliable on that single city uh, made it difficult for us to make a good deal with the city. And in the end, we ended up with a very, I must say, bad situation with the city and the mun- municipality of Badum, which is close to Oslo, where the venue is located, without any real financial support, without any real logistic support. And uh, it left the broadcast of alone, basically. And I must say that that was tough. Uh, but, uh, you know, after a while, all the criticism that is, is, you, 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 first you have a lot of enthusiasm, then the criticism starts from, you know, from journalists, from different environments. Uh, also internally, people uh, within the broadcaster are afraid that their, their money will disappear into this black hole. But um, after a while, uh, the enthusiasm came back. And I must say that... The last six, seven months, uh, we had a huge push from, from almost everywhere in Norway. And that was, that was actually fantastic to see. And also that we managed to get on board really experienced people from, from different part of parts of Europe that could uh, support us, help us and, uh, and give good advice on how this could be turned into a state of the art television program. Although with very uh, limited financial resources compared to other years, you're
1: describing it as if it was very, very hard. But apparently, you liked the tornado since you decided that you would wanted to do this every year. I love the
2: tornadoes. I, I, I work absolutely best when we're close to chaos, oh. and uh, and I'm not joking. I, I I think that is that is where you can maneuver where you have to maneuver, and there is no way out of it. You have a deadline, you have a lot of challenges, and you just have to to cut through it. And uh, I like that, and that's why I've enjoyed every single minute as the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest, because you get the same as the host-broadcaster gets, plus 43.
0: Talking about chaos, two years after the trip went to Baku... And I believe everyone has heard stories about this place and suspicions have been aired more than once that everything wasn't 100%, let's say, kosher.
2: Uh, It depends what you mean with kosher. I mean, you have to work with the environment as it is. But we were very clear from day one with the broadcaster, Iktimai TV, uh, in Azerbaijan, and also with all the stakeholders that suddenly popped up there that the EPU owns the Eurovision Song Contest and we can help you do it right and we expect you to follow our directions or we can do it somewhere else. Yeah. And we had an excellent cooperation with Baku and the government and the broadcaster. You know, it took a couple of weeks or let me say, it took a month to get it on track.
0: But what... We got it on track. It worked really well. But how aware were you and your team of the issues about, I'm thinking of, that people were forced to move for the arena?
1: And maybe the fact that the wife of the country's president was appointed as head of the contest? Well, uh,
2: in, in a country like Azerbaijan, you need the involvement of decision makers. And the first lady of Azerbaijan is definitely a decision maker. I ha- I met her at her office. We had a very good talk. And it, it, it was not complicated. It was not any, you know, pushy kind of attitude from the Aceri side. Uh, I made it very clear what the rules of the Eurovision Song Contest was, how they should be interpreted, and how they should be followed. And from that point on, uh, it was great to work with uh, the authorities um, um sort of guided by the first lady because that helped us stage it in Azerbaijan in a good way. When it comes to all the talk about people who had to move because of the venue and, and so on, yeah, I mean it's it is difficult when you are developing a city and the city of Baku had been and was in a very rapid change at that time the makeover didn't happen when Eurovision Song Contest was to happen in, in Baku. Uh, it started many years before that. And I, we believe because we have, as the EBU, have very good, you know, connection with uh, all our members. And we believe that, you know, some would like to use the opportunity to light out some obvious difficulties in their country. And there are obvious difficulties in, in, in Azerbaijan when it comes to human rights issues and so on. And by using the Eurovision Song Contest to put a spotlight on this, maybe the stories became a little twisted or, 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 or different yeah. than, um, than they should be. So we felt all the way that we had, uh, a good dialogue with the different, you know, parts of it. We talked to ambassadors. We talked to, Companies, uh, foreign companies working there. Uh, we, we talked to people in Azerbaijan. Uh, we had open meetings. Uh, we got all the information back. So I think we, we managed as good as we could. And you know, yeah, it is, it is a different country than, than what we used to from, from our point of view investing in Western Europe.
1: It you know, seems like we can put some of the
0: worst rumors to rest. Them.
2: Well, at, at least, uh, at least you know, they should be balanced out. Yeah, okay.
0: In a recent episode of this podcast, Christy Björkman told us a lot of interesting things about what has happened behind the scenes when he has been a head of delegation or a contest producer. For instance, when Erik Sade's glass cage didn't explode as planned in Düsseldorf, or when delegations have come to him with totally unreasonable requests for their acts. Have you had any experiences of delegations that have been hard to please and you really have to put your foot down? That happens every
2: year. And I understand that because there are so much tension. There are so much ambitions. There are so much will. And, and you know, it's it's a lot at stake for yeah. artists, delegations, and, you know, everyone around that. So every year, yeah, we have challenging discussions. Uh, we cannot please everyone 100%. But what is for sure that every participating broadcaster in the Eurovision Song Contest get exactly the same attention. They have exactly the same three minutes on stage. And I, my team and the host broadcasters uh, are putting equal uh, focus on on the act. It doesn't matter if you're from Slovenia or Germany, it will be treated the same way. And yes, I've had really hard and difficult times with Christy Birkman when it comes to the glass cage uh, <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: that didn't explode. He even said, I have to bring Eric Sade into your office because he is he's close to <laughs> exploding. And and I met with Eric and I met with Christer and I said that this is how it is. You you have decided on this effect, and let's hope it works. But you cannot, you know, you you. There's nothing else we can do. Either you drop it, or we trust that this glass will explode as it should. Anything. I will be- So yes, we have uh, tough discussions and, and Swedes, uh, we have tough discussions with them. We have tough discussions with other broadcasters as well. So we had um, during my years, yeah.
1: If you are really, really honest, are the Swedes the hardest to deal with, with all the ambitions?
2: <laughs> no, not really. Uh, not really, but Swedes are very often or they always very well prepared they know what they want. They know also what kind of buttons they should push on, push on to get there because it is a highly professional TV environment and music environment in Sweden. So in that case, they can be tough, but they know why they are asking these questions. There are other delegations that are equally tough, but not as well prepared. They might not have prepared in advance, so the host broadcaster might not have you know, understood or couldn't, you know, really read out what they wanted. Uh, And uh, for that reason, uh, there can be heated discussions, but on a different level. Um, So so every broadcaster is different. And uh, I won't say that there are a lot of unprofessional broadcasters because there's not, but they prepare differently and they have different arguments. And um, the Swedes always, you know, you know they're always well prepared. Uh, can be tough, but that's part of the game.
1: Speaking of that year, we in Sweden came from the first time we had ever missed out on the final, and then we came with Eriksson and an exploding glass cage, and had quite a success. But in the semi-finals, Sweden was called last of the ten promoted countries. And Kristi Björkman has later said in interviews that he knew that you would do this, that you would place Sweden's call called last, uh, maybe as some kind of revenge or just a joke
2: or something. Is it true? <laughs> I won't comment on that. Actually. I, uh, I won't do that. Krister uh, might have his uh, interpretation of that, and uh, I might even have told Krister uh, what I know about this and why uh, why the thing is as it is, but. Uh, I won't comment on that, but uh, put it another way, I have control of every part of the show. There is no, nothing in that show that I'm not aware of. So when things are called out, I know why it's called out uh, in that particular order. Uh, The only thing I don't know uh, when I'm sitting at the scrutineers desk is who's going to be the winner.
0: But do you have any examples for us besides the big no-no for the wolf on stage? There
2: are always big no-nos. I mean, it's... Uh, it could be a technical thing or artists or delegations who wants to bring their own props or microphones or, or things on stage that are not connected to the main system, which means that we don't control it when they go on stage. That could be um, some years delegation brings props that needs a, a different electronical or digital setup that is coming from a remote source. They're bringing their own laptop. Running yeah. it, uh, which we cannot we cannot agree upon that because that will make us lose control of the whole production. So that happens, and uh, it could be that they bring a really fancy microphone that they like to sing in. That is not ours. It's actually we cannot control that this microphone really delivers what it promises. These things are happening every year, and it's uh, it's important for the EBU to and the host broadcaster to have full. Well, full control overall for the of the show
0: one another thing that Christer said was that uh, the e b u isn't the fastest of organizations when it comes to decisions, and mm-hmm. I think this is so funny because the e b u is a small bunch of people, so I'm very mm-hmm. curious why this would be the case.
2: Yeah, but I don't know what he's referring to. I mean, SVT as well. I worked with them for over two, you know, two Eurovision Song Contest. They're not the fastest either. So it's, uh, it's. Uh, if if I knew what he was referring to, I could have uh, answered that question.
0: This was the last year Yugoslavia participated since they were falling apart at the time. Had you been in charge, would they have participated in 92? Um. How do you mean that? Well, I mean, the, the country Yugoslavia didn't exist at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, due to technicalities and to the fact that EBU is also an organization that is not the quickest to come to decisions and to... I mean, I'd rather have them in than not having them at all. So
2: but it... it- it lies in you know every organization has you know a slower pace than one or two or three you know persons might have. Uh, SVT can have a really slow pace, uh, um, extremely slow pace, and so NRK and so you know NR NDR or you know any organization. But to understand the EBU, it's important to understand that they represent all uh, the participating broadcasters. And uh, the EBU itself is financed by the participating broadcasters or or even more. uh, All the EBU members are financing the Eurovision Song Contest. The Eurovision Song Contest is financed by the participating broadcasters. Hence, they are co-producers. So it's not up to one person at the EBU to say this is the way it is or not. You have to involve the co-producers. And it's difficult often being on the outside to understand this. Well, uh, looking
1: at your job from the outside, it can seem that a big part of it was that you had to deal with various crises and controversies. Was this really what you spent most of your time on, or is it just the way it is presented by the media?
2: It's definitely the way it is presented by the media. There are not that many crises or controversies when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest, but it is a hugely complex and difficult setup. The most challenging TV and event on the globe, I will imagine, because you only have a short year to prepare, which means that you cannot dwell uh, and and mull. Over everything that you want to do, you have to move with a really fast pace. And that could be the reason why the EBU at several points in, in the, in the progress towards Eurovision Song Contest has to step in and say, listen, stop. This is it. Now we move forward. You do like this. Otherwise we won't reach, you know, the final stage. And that might be perceived like a crisis or, or controversial, but, but it's not really. It's just the obligation the EBU has to move this uh, event forward. Is it okay if we just
1: go through some examples that has happened on your watch and you can maybe confirm or deny and put the rumors to rest about them?
0: Sure, go ahead. Uh, a lot of countries have stopped competing, or there has been talks about them competing, but it has never come to be. For instance, countries like Tunisia, Lebanon, Morocco, and several other countries in that region do not take part due to Israel.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's the case. It's it's also a fact that uh, some of these broadcasters are in a very dire situation, both financially, politically. Uh, they have no legitimacy. And the Eurovision Song Contest is not a big brand there. So why should they enter into something huge, expensive, that maybe, you know, they won't benefit from? But it is a fact that, that uh, the participation of Israel also is a, is a factor here.
0: Turkey withdrew since they disapproved of some rules.
2: Uh, we never uh, got a formal explanation from the Turkish member of the EBU. Why they decided not to continue with the Eurovision Song Contest. They never mentioned any specific rules. They never, you know, to us. We also read in, in, you know, some media outlets and in some blogs that that should be the case, but they never presented that to us. I think, you know, when it comes to Turkey's participation in Eurovision Song Contest, I think that should be seen in a broader sort of context about the relationship between Turkey, uh, Europe, hence EU. And uh, I, I don't think this is about particular rules or points in the rules because that could easily have been cleared out with us. Uh, at least, um, you know, we could have talked about it, but they never approached us and never talked about this with us uh, on that. And we have had several attempt on the highest level of the EBU to, to, you know, understand why the situation became um, this way. But we never got any explanation.
1: As you said, some countries, they uh, step out due to a lack of funds, or at least so they claim. I'm thinking like Bosnia and Herzegovina and Slovakia. And then we have countries like Luxembourg, Monaco and Andorra that simply believes they are too small. But it sounds to me like you have the same dream as I have, that anyone eligible will actually compete.
2: Yeah, that would be an ideal scenario. However, reaching more than 43 broadcasters uh, would be very difficult. Uh, We have had 43 broadcasters uh, competing in the Eurovision Song Contest. And it is on the absolutely max of what you can uh, manage. Uh, when it comes to production, logistics, um, organizational issues, so yes, it would be great to have more countries on board, but we we don't lack any countries. I mean, it's we have almost more than we can handle when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest. It's it's uh, I mean, it's phenomenal to have more than forty countries participating. I've said internally at the EBU. I've never. I think the the ideal size is between 39 and 41 countries because then you get space in the programs to you know create of the type of content you have a handleable size of 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 delegations so you you bring the cost down so you bring the logistic challenges down so yes uh on one side uh, it it would be great to have everyone participating. But on the other side, it's 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 actually a limit. And that's why we also changed the amount of broadcasters to a maximum of 44 uh, when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest.
0: There has also been talks about several countries debuting almost every year, like Liechtenstein, Kosovo and Kazakhstan. How close have they come? Um,
2: not very close, I must say. Uh, when it comes to... Kazakhstan it's uh, it's they have shown a keen very keen interest for, for many years uh we know that they can come up with fantastic acts we've seen that in junior eurovision song contest where they are allowed in uh, on a case by case decision but there's never been any serious discussion to bring them into the eurovision song contest they have had several requests the reason for this is that they are not a full-fledged EBU member and they're on a very different time zone than Europe. I mean um when you when you go to Baku I think you have 5 hours difference which is very challenging in itself and uh, you have even more if you go to to Kazakhstan so 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 that is um and, and, and then it's a very different uh, uh, TV uh, and media environment there. Um, so I, I don't think in the... In the I, I couldn't say because I'm, I'm not in a position anymore, but I, I, I don't think they in the, you know, in the next years will be a member of the Eurovision Song Contest family. Okay. Uh, you mentioned some other countries there as well. Could you please
0: repeat... Uh, I talked about Kosovo and Liechtenstein. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, it's the same with Kosovo. They are not a member of uh, of, uh, the EBU. They have a special agreement with the EBU. And to get a member, to become a member of the EBU, there is a process. And we have always said that if the broadcaster in Kosovo becomes an EBU member, uh, we will definitely uh, look at that uh, and to see if they could um, become... um, um, a part of, uh, or be a part of the Eurovision Song Contest, so that's a process uh, Liechtenstein, I, I think they are eligible to participate, but um, uh, like Andorra and, uh, and Monaco and some other smaller broadcasters uh, but uh, to, to be I, I cannot recall that they ever have approached us to become uh, participants Let's jump into another
1: type of controversy. Uh, When we see some flags in the green room that are maybe slightly politically charged, if we say it that way, we have seen the flag of Palestine and of Nagorno-Karabakh. How do you react when you sit there as the supervisor and see this? Are you surprised?
2: Actually, I get angry. Uh, and I got angry on both of those occasions uh, in Stockholm, where the Nagorno-Karabakh flag was waved uh, by the Armenian delegation. I, I was both very surprised that this could happen, uh, because we have such good and close relation to the head of delegation and I mean, the whole delegation. We know the broadcaster very well, so that this was rolled out by an individual in the delegation, was to my big surprise, and um, and uh, I, this is you know this is not in the spirit of the Eurovision Song Contest. The same um, in Israel when the Palestine flag was rolled out by the by the um, um, Icelandic Icelandic delegation, and it was you know it, it, I was very unhappy about that. Because I've spent almost two weeks with that delegation. I know the head of delegation very well. Uh, We worked together for many years. And uh, Felix and I, I, he even invited me to meetings to talk to the band, uh, to the group. And uh, we had a lot of discussions about this. They were on a mission and uh, and unluckily they rolled out that flag, which I think was, you know, it didn't help the Palestinian situation anything. It didn't, you know, do anything apart from hammering the Eurovision Song Contest. So all they did was hammering the Eurovision Song Contest and it didn't do anything good. They did a lot of good when they were there, um, so to speak, by trying to reach out to the different voices in Israel and in Palestine. But, you know, that's, you know, I, I think this is, this is a way of showing your... Political side, which doesn't help anyone. It, it doesn't do anyone any good.
0: We must talk about Russia and Ukraine, two countries who, between them, have had perhaps more controversies than any other. Uh, take, for instance, when Russia withdrew in 2017 since the artist was banned from entering Ukraine. Oh,
1: there's a night. There's a light. And in the darkest time a flame is burning it
2: shines so bright deep in the night Love is a light
0: and in the darkest a flame is burning uh, Do you believe that Russia ever intended to compete that year
2: I won't comment on that uh, actually because I don't know but uh, I uh, I feel that this was you know this was a part of a bigger power play between the countries and uh and you know it ended where it ended it was not good it was you know uh, i uh, i have a lot of respect for for the russian delegation and also the russian producer yuri who uh is the guy who has brought up so many good acts for the eurovision song contest I was disappointed when this, you know, um, they announced their artist, you know, you know, two minutes before deadline. And, you know, I, I don't think this was a good move from the Russian side. Although I have no, you know, I, I cannot say that this was um, deliberately uh, trying to, to play a power game, but it could be uh, really. It, it, it was a sad situation uh sad not to have russia on board sad that we couldn't manage to to get those two countries competing on the same say, side but stage but we had the same situation in with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yeah the Armenian delegation decided not to participate in Azerbaijan in 2012. I mean for the same reasons. Uh, that's even a harsher conflict in Europe or a longer longer lasting actually than the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. So we've had those conflicts before. We are proud every year when those countries can be on the same stage, can be in the same green room, can be in the same dressing room, sharing the same facilities. That's, you know, I think that's a great achievement. Some years we cannot, you know, for one reason or another, it doesn't happen. But, uh, well, that's how it is. But surely
1: all... Every time that some country tries to use Eurovision in this way for some kind of political power play, that must be quite disappointing for someone in your position.
2: Yeah, it is disappointing. I get very disappointed about it. Uh, most, uh, I don't get angry. I just get disappointed because it doesn't do anyone anything good. It just, you know, hammered hammers the contest that everyone loves. I mean, Russia loves the Eurovision Song Contest. So does Ukraine. They love it. And Armenia loves it. Azerbaijan loves it. And there are no reason for trying to make any smart move for a short-term benefit. I think, you know, my wish would be that all broke us. And usually they do support this very well. Again, I, I, I talked about the Russian delegation. They have been huge supporters of the Eurovision Song Contest. Very constructive, very... You know, s- strong and good, always well prepared. Always have good discussions with them on site. Uh, so that's why I'm 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 sad when when those kind of delegations might try to to to, to gain some short term benefits on a kind of a power play. The same with the, the Icelandic uh, dele- Icelandic delegation. I mean, it, it's Felix is is a great guy. He's a knowledgeable guy, and he knows. You know. His his axe is right on the mark with everything he does. But this he couldn't control. And he was very disappointed
0: as well. How much did the EBU try to mediate to resolve the issue when Ukraine withdrew in 2019, since the chosen artist Maruv and all the run ups refused to sign the contract that the TV station required?
2: Well, we... There's not much we can do because the, it is the broadcaster in Ukraine, which is responsible for, for the act and the artist. We cannot go down in detail to control their contract and their, their dealings with the artist. But it's, it goes without saying that the host no the participating broadcaster has to follow the rules of the Eurovision Song Contest. And in the rules of the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, there are certain paragraphs that limits the freedom for the artist to do whatever he or she wants or they want it's I mean they have to follow the the, the schedule that ebu is providing and the host broadcaster is providing when it comes to rehearsals when it comes to press conferences uh, when it comes to other obligations that we put on the participating uh, broadcasters bang <laughs> Um, so, so without knowing the exact reason for the artist to withdraw, because that's, you know, there been plenty of versions of that, we cannot go down and, and, and control that. We can talk to the broadcaster, we can ask for an explanation, we can ask them to try to come up with a solution. Uh, we could clarify if needed, uh, but there's no way the EBU can go in and dictate how uh, they should, you know, Treat their artists because that's uh, between the broadcaster and the artist.
1: You spent uh, like a decade at the helm of this. How many times during that period did you think to yourself, why can't we not all just get
2: along? <laughs> Never. Uh, never, never. Uh, no, no. It's, it's, that's, that's, you know, uh, you're entering into a very fascinating environment. Uh, Europe is very diverse. Europe is very, what can I say? It's, it's, every country is different. Every, the working culture is different. The way they look upon values is different. The way, uh, they look upon, you know, production is different. So, and that's the beauty of the Eurovision Song Contest. That all of these different uh, views and cultures can stand together on the same stage, performing under the same rules for the same sake. And, and I think we managed very well. So I, I never had a sleepless night. Uh, thinking about that, no.
0: Uh, Azerbaijan has been accused of buying televotes for many years, and in 2013, I believe that was even proven. Did you ever come close to disqualify them or take some other drastic measures?
2: No, uh, we didn't do that. We were looking at, uh, you know, the same sort of proof that you are referring to, and it's it's not that clear. We have not seen any massive attacks on the voting system of the Eurovision Song Contest. We know that some individuals and some groups have tried to manipulate, uh, saying that Azerbaijan as such was involved in fraud is, I think, both wrong and, uh, and also extremely difficult to, to prove. That certain individuals attached to a certain country would have tried is is both likely and, uh, and 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 we also seen attempts but nothing serious nothing that we cannot handle nothing we cannot cope with nothing we uh, you know we have very good systems on the televoting side uh, to protect the Eurovision song contest and uh, we have not this has not been a big stress point for the Eurovision song contest over the years
1: Hold me just I was just going to ask you about that, because uh, if we go back to Azerbaijan and Armenia, we know that just before you took the helm at the office, uh, it happened that the Azerbaijani security police interrogated citizens who had televoted for Armenia. And Azerbaijani broadcaster removed the phone number for the Armenian song. But nowadays, the televoting is organized centrally from Cologne in Germany. Has this improved things a lot, do you think?
2: Uh, yes it has but still it's the obligation of the broadcasters to put on the phone number that is not handled centrally uh, and the voting in 2008 or I think it 2009 was, or nine when this uh, situation apparently should have occurred it was also handled centrally from Cologne uh, so that doesn't change anything um, We, uh, that was before my time, as you rightly said, but we were investigating this. I was in the reference group at that time, uh, the board of the Eurovision Song Contest, and uh, and we were looking into that and we got the explanation. And again, who who can tell the truth uh, when it comes to uh, situations like this? Uh, It might very well have been an action from the Assyri authorities, uh, they are at war with the Armenians. It could be. The explanation that the EBU got was not pointing in that direction, but uh, I cannot comment on that because I wasn't you know, a part of it. But we know that there are strong tensions between those two countries, but this has nothing to do with the, with the non-centralized or centralized voting, because at that time it was all centralized through Digamé Mobile in Cologne, and the broadcaster itself put on the captions. Although it should be said that the TV director of the EBU, Björn Eriksson, the year after came over to Baku during the transmission, sat in the main control room uh, at the TV station to make sure that uh, such thing didn't happen again. So the EBU took action in that way.
0: But have you tried to do something about that the jury members of the above-mentioned countries consistently place the other country last in the rankings?
2: Well this is the uh, this is one of the difficult points that actually uh the EBU has to deal with every year. Uh because they are, as you said, constantly putting up the other country lost. And that's a challenge that we I, I, I cannot see how we can overcome. Uh basically because I think it's it's so rooted uh in the jury members' mindset. Uh, that it is difficult to crack it or to change it. You cannot force them to vote for a song uh, that they say they don't like. Uh, so, so this is the fragile thing with the jury system. We put it in the hands of the participating broadcasters. In almost all cases, we feel that we have a very valid and balanced result from the juries. In some cases... We see that we could, you know, it could be better, but it's not difficult to, no, it's it's not easy to say what we should do to change it. And if we want, you know, if, if the main objective is to have both Azerbaijan and Armenia participating, then this is a difficult not to crack.
1: In an ideal world, would you like to have more members on each jury?
2: We are discussing this with the Eurovision Song Contest reference group almost every year. We're doing calculations. We're doing um, uh, simulations. How would that be? Would that help? Uh, how should it be organized? Uh, there has been discussions. So if we should have juries appointed by the EBU and sitting in Geneva, representing different countries, um, discussions about, you know, uh, should we have... A common European jury, just one big European jury appointed by the EBU or in, in, in cooperation with the members. Um, we think that the system that is in place now is the best we can get. So, um, hence that's why we have it like this. I think it's good that we reflect the, the national taste and whether 10, 15 people would be better. Uh, We haven't really, you know, we haven't really got a good answer on that. Um, No.
1: We have spoken about before that different countries use very different methods to select their entries. We have like huge classic televised pre-selections like in the the Scandinavian countries. We have totally opaque internal selections in various countries, like for instance, in Azerbaijan most of the time, but even... Netherlands and other countries. And we even have examples of when you more or less can pay your way to Eurovision, like in San Marino. How much does the EBU care about this? And what do you personally think?
2: (laughs) The EBU cares a lot about this. Uh, First of all, that we don't want to decide uh, on the broadcaster's schedule. We don't want to, to point our finger at a member and say, you have to have a national selection show. We could do that. We could, you know, follow the the roots of of Champions League and say that you have to do it this way, period. Uh, This would not be within the legislation of public service broadcasting and their editorial freedom. So that difficult that's difficult. But we are constantly working with our members to try to or encouraging them very hard and to give them best practice examples. On how to do a national selection show. It could be from a very small show on the corner stage um, during a you know a talk show program or whatever. One song, two artists, or two song, one art two songs, one artist type of minimum, up to the full blast melody festival concept. Um personally, I've been traveling with my computer full of good examples, talking to broadcasters encouraging them to come on board and in many ways we have succeeded. Many broadcasters over the last 10 years have decided to go from an internal selection to um, um, a type of selection where you have a public vote uh, in it. So at least you represent more than um, a handful of people in the broadcaster. Personally, I would really like to see all broadcasters having, um, a national selection. And more than that, uh, a sort of a type of, um, of competition that is, uh, equivalent in, in, in all the countries so that there are a sort of, sort of like in sports, you have a type of selection show that you can recognize and, and that leads up to the Eurovision Song Contest. That would strengthen the brand of the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, we believe it would strengthen the entries, the acts. Uh, and also the enthusiasm behind the act, because if if you're chosen mainly or partly by the public in the country, you would have um, a much stronger sort of social media push towards the, the Eurovision Sound Contest. So that would be ideal from my side, but it's very difficult to push through.
0: Your goodbye to the contest was rather, let's say, anticlimactic due to the necessary consolation of the 2020 contest. Was this the hardest decision you have ever had to make?
2: Uh, yeah, well, cancelling the Eurovision Song Contest was probably the hardest decision I've ever made. But it, the, the authorities in the Netherlands couldn't pull, pull it off. Uh, the Netherlands, they couldn't pull it off. So, so, so it, it would be impossible anyway. I um, mean, if, if I didn't cancel it, uh, someone else would have canceled it. So, so this isn't something that I, you know, made up in my um, in my office. This is something that you know, after months of discussions or weeks of discussions uh, with authorities, um, uh, with members uh, internally at EBU, uh, there was no other way we could we could do it. So it was I was the guy who had to go out and and sort of give the message. But um and also you know sanction it uh, in the end but but that was not you know solely my decision at all. This was you know a yeah. pandemic in in Europe that or in the world that hit many more big uh, contests and events than uh, the eurovision Sun contest
1: but uh, is it extra bad or sad rather that it this would have been your final contest?
2: Yeah, Well, yes, uh, I must admit that. Uh, I was very much looking forward to Rotterdam. I had an excellent cooperation with the team in Rotterdam. And um, uh, of course, I would have uh, preferred to end my sort of 10 years uh, with the Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam uh, with a proper Eurovision Song Contest. Um, and then it's also the fact that closing a, Euro- a Eurovision Song Contest is much harder than, you know building it it is extremely complicated to untie all the contracts and and obligations uh, and arrangements that you already have in place uh, so so it gave me also a very hard aftermath which was uh, which was not really what I expected when I when I decided that I wanted to to end uh, my term uh, with the Rotterdam edition in 2020
1: and besides that we must have missed out on several like interval acts uh, to celebrate you <laughs> that we never got to see
2: <laughs> I'm not sure about that uh, I'm uh, I'm not uh, I'm not any I'm not the one who's pushing for uh, celebration acts and uh, we had uh, I mean the the show in Rotterdam for 2020 was ready. It was just you, we just had to push the button. So um so and there were there were no Ola act acting that uh, as I can recall.
0: <laughs> what are you doing today in your life, Jonola?
2: Well, uh today in my life I'm working uh, again for public service broadcaster NRK. And uh NRK uh, in Oslo is moving its headquarters. 2,500 people moving from the old uh, headquarters where we have been located for 80 years, Yeah, you know, at least 80 years, and then uh, moving to brand new uh, facilities on a brand new slot uh, in 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 Oslo, where we have we have bought a slot in Oslo where we can where we can build a new media city, basically, and I'm taking the lead there, so I'm very busy now working on um, on the internal organization. Uh, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a long haul. We won't be there until, you know, six, eight years. But uh, it's an extremely exciting process uh, to see um, the, um, you know, the way forward for public service broadcasting in Norway and make sure that they have excellent facilities to meet, you know, all challenges that's, we know will be ahead, and those uh, challenges we, we don't know about. So, so that's a fantastic challenge, and I'm very happy to be a part of that.
0: As last question, I must ask: What do you think about American Song Contest?
2: Uh, I was, you know, I was instrumental in getting the American Song Contest started. I've, I've actually been working uh, on that since I started at EBU. We had several attempts towards um, American producers that uh, either contacted us or we sort of was were talking to them uh, to see if it was possible to stage a similar uh, competition in the US without really knowing what it could be, but just to see if we could extend the brand to another territory massively. When uh, Christy Berkman and uh, the team uh, around him Approached us uh, some years ago. I s- instantly uh, I-, I was I was positive, very positive uh, about that because I saw that this could be really a good key to open up the American door because that is a very different door to open when it comes to TV events. Uh, and uh, working with Peter Setman, who already had a base over in Los Angeles, we saw that this could be an interesting. Uh, move, uh, but they had to go through the the same sort of uh, stages of option agreement and and contractual issues with EBU through our legal department to be able to get the rights to do so. They had to prove their concept. They had to prove their financial ability. They had to prove their um, network in the US. But then we positively could we with with great you know enthusiasm could sign that contract in 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 May 2019 uh in in Tel Aviv actually and uh, and that was a great leap forward uh for the American contest i have regular contact with uh with Christer and his team who are now based in los angeles uh, to um to make sure that you know i i i don't provide them with any uh any uh, sort of ebu guidance anymore but I, I have contactly, uh, constantly contact with them to make sure that they, they feel comfortable and that they are on the right track because I think that is extremely important that if we do this now, we should succeed and we should have something that it can benefit the Eurovision Song Contest. The, just to say that the Eurovision Song Contest in Europe stands very strong on its own legs. It doesn't need an American Song t- Contest. It doesn't need an Asian Song Contest. But it's a very good way to expand the brand and the enthusiasm uh, for, uh, for the Eurovision Song Contest. So I wish them all luck, and, uh, and I know that EBU is fully behind this, and uh, I really hope they will succeed.
0: Thank you so much for this talk, Jonulla.
2: And thank you very
1: much for steering our favorite ship so well for 10 years.
2: Well, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for uh, letting me participate here. And um, I do care a lot about the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, I work now from a member side, watching at the Eurovision Song Contest, not only on the program side, but also on the organizational side. So um, I will do my best to help out, if ever needed, uh, to make sure that the Eurovision Song Contest stays strong for another 60 years.
0: And thanks to you, Hermione Björkander. Next time I will call you Professor McGonagall.
1: Well, that sounds like an upgrade, as long as you don't downgrade me to Hagrid. And thank you from all of us to our dear listeners, who we couldn't do this without. As always, you can contact us. You can email se, or you can use our social media.
0: On Facebook and Instagram.
1: Yeah, that's what they called, right. Yeah. If you've just discovered this podcast, consider su- subscribing. You can do this on basically any platform. And share this episode with whomever you think
0: might be interested. I feel, though, that we have only scratched the surface of what you have to tell. So I would like to invite you back for another episode in the future when you have recovered from this one, of course.
2: I'm more than happy to participate, so please send me an invite and I'll see if I can jump on a call like this. Lovely. And you must return
1: because you still owe us a third favourite song.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's end this funny conversation with the immortal words of the great philosopher Annam from Iceland, 1996. Shubidoo! Should Shubidoo! doo.